The door stands open. Across lines, invisible hands are held, golden streamers building in the night. Alone, the possibilities are enormous. Step outside, and parasites, deprived of their meat, wait to suck on tiring flesh. Unending statistics that fatten leaders, prisoners of their morality. Afraid of death, we cannot save ourselves. To breathe is not enough. This podcast is an attempt to tell different kinds of stories. Ones with complex messages, ones that are of human size, and ones that aren't so clearly stories. The narratives we seek are those which go beyond the simple morality plays of popular culture and the inverted but otherwise identical anecdotes of the radical milieu. We believe that a world of free people is possible, a world of individuals who cannot be seen directly yet are impossible to ignore. We call these people the brilliant. For this episode, we are talking with the editor of Enemies of Society and Disruptive Elements, and really we're going to talk about the the thread that connects egoism, or what we call egoism now, and probably it's a, there's a name in waiting uh, since the new translation has come out. So we're talking about the, the thread that connects egoism to illegalism, which on some level is the answer to the question, what do we do? Uh, set more in the cadence of the time of the 19th century and early 20th century, but obviously with the dawn of a new century, um, this is one of the people who I would turn to to think about what would a modern illegalist practice or a modern practice of taking these complicated sets of ideas that were introduced to us by Stirner and thinking about what they look like today. So anyways, welcome. Good to be here. So I guess we are going to start out with a timeline just to talk a little bit about what your understanding of what the German context looked like when Stirner passed. And do you at least on some level understand when uh, the book, The Unique, uh, began to travel into other languages? Yeah, I think uh, Stirner languished into obscurity pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, after his book was published, it created a big splash for four or five years, and then he was largely forgotten about. He was eventually translated into Italian, Spanish, and French. The first appearance of uh, the unique in France was in 1900. So it was that late? It was that late. Yeah. And uh, do you know who the translator was or anything about Uh, that situation? And so... 
to what extent were the anarchists in, and I assume it was mostly anarchists who embraced the book, uh, who were they? Well, France had already had like a really long tradition of anarchist criminality and anarchist illegalism. Oh, interesting. And a lot of those, the earlier French illegalists were motivated by more traditional anarchist values and goals, mutual aid, stealing from the rich, giving to the poor, but primarily they were trying to fund their own projects, but they were justifying it through anarchist ethics. So there was Mm -hmm. still a sense of morality connected to their activities. And this would include people like Clement Duval and Marius Jacob, uh, both of whom were active in the mid 1880s. And And, and was their analysis more of what we would call like a class struggle type analysis? Most definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So they were, they were approaching their criminality from that perspective Um, as anarchists that, the state is making this necessary. Capitalism is making this necessary, but we can engage in acts that we don't necessarily morally agree with, but we can morally justify it because we're mm-hmm. we're doing good things with the proceeds of our criminality. Oh, that's interesting. So they were very much ends justify the means. You know, there was also, of course, more of like a social anarchist, or you know, in the in the in the years prior to the Spanish Civil War. In the Spanish-speaking world, there was a lot of the similar sort of activity. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, what, what people like Clement Duval were doing largely were they were they were funding anarchist schools, uh, independent anarchist educational projects, oh. the anarchist press. And this was mostly bank robbery? Uh, bank robbery and uh, home invasions. Uh, oh, burglar, burglary. Burglary, yeah. Oh. And it, it was explicitly like rich person steal shit from the rich people and, and most explicitly i mean a whole yeah. code of ethics and theft morality was developed around it really so where was that was that expanded in text or where was that expanded uh, you know most text? of it occurred in the in paris and in that zone um but like were like so was it this talked about in their newspapers uh it was discussed yeah in the newspapers and uh in which publications well, la, la, la Anarchy is obviously, you know, one that existed for twenty years. Yeah, period. that that came later. Though Libertad yeah. started that. He he's of a of the next generation uh-huh. that were influenced by Stirner. So, like Clement Duval and Marius Jacob were both apprehended by by the late eighteen hundreds. So, oh. Marius Jacob went down in eighteen seventy nine, did his prison terms. Clement Duval was shipped to French Guyana in 1887. So that was the end of that generation. They were effectively shut down. Most of the anarchists that wound up being influenced by Stirner were actually born around that period of time. Oh, interesting. So they they were born... So there was a gap, like a gap where not much was happening. There was a gap. Mm-hmm. The, the next wave of French illegalists, most of them were born in like the late 1880s. And... As I mentioned earlier, Stirner's work appeared in French in 1900. So when it appeared, though, it didn't waste any time having a huge influence. I mean, it was immediately embraced by that generation of anarchists. And that's when Libertad's publication, Anarchy, was in full swing. Yeah, talk, talk a little bit about Libertad, because he's a really interesting figure, not necessarily in legalism himself, but a publisher of that kind of material. Yeah, um... He was a cripple 
Um, he was born with polio so or cried. contracted it at a young age. And he was also an orphan. So he grew, grew up in an orphanage uh, somewhere along the line, early in life as a teenager, living in poverty, living on the streets. He got exposed to anarchist ideas. And he started this anarchist weekly, Anarchy, which became probably the most influential paper of that era amongst anarchists. And it was really inflammatory. He was one of the first anarchists in France to read Stirner and embrace his ideas and begin to develop it within his own cultural context and time period. And what are the essays that, when you think of him, that are like the ones? Oh, there's many to list. The Patriotic Herd, uh, The Lesser of Two Evils. Libertad had a lot of contempt for the herd and for herd mentality. Oh, so he... so. So this reading of Stirner, a French reading of Stirner, is really where perhaps the elitism charges. It, well, you know, the first translations of Nietzsche started to appear in France in the around the same time. I think two years prior to Stirner, thus spoke Zarathustra, appeared in France for the first time. Oh, that's interesting. So it was definitely a melting pot of those two thinkers. Yeah, um, yeah anarchists were being exposed to them both right around the same period of time. There was a merging of their perspectives. I think the complete amorality of Stirner was more enthusiastically embraced mm -hmm. than Nietzsche's revaluation of all values. Mm -hmm. So, uh, anyways, going back to Libertad, his analysis, or or like when he was referring to the herd, was he just referring to the fact that that people weren't choosing to throw off the chains? Yeah, going along with their own destruction, um, mm -hmm. choosing compliance and acquiescence over self-empowerment. And so he began to promote these ideas, and he was evidently a, an incredibly charismatic figure. And, it, you know, he he was a very skilled writer. His writings definitely pack a punch and retain a fiery force to this day. But I think like certain other anarchists like Emma Goldman or Johann Most, he was highly regarded also as a public speaker and an orator. Hmm. And as an orator, he evidently had a really captivating, energizing effect on those in attendance. Hmm. And so he began to attract a circle of younger anarchists around him, people like Victor Serge and other future members of the Bono gang. Andre so, Lorelut as well, who was, was not a member of the Bono gang, but he was in their orbit. And, um, so really what we're talking about, though, is, is the way in which culture, cultural values, uh, how they parsed Stirner in different ways. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that one of the things that we don't really hear any story of at all are people who uh, were observing Stirner from Germany. And that, that of course, is this yeah. sort of fascinating, like, empty space. Like, he wrote this really powerful book that... That you know really did actually uh, have something to say about the topics of the time, mm -hmm. and didn't necessarily create a circle around him. You know, there were some people who clearly like worked with him personally, mm -hmm. whatever on the on the dairy cooperative and and maybe some educational stuff. But that by and large, his ideas were not necessarily interesting to, to Germans. But of course, you know, when we think about French cultural values, it makes sense that these ideas had had fertile ground. Well, you know, getting back to his limited influence in 
in Germany. It was actually like through the work of the German Scottish anarchist, John Henry McKay, that he was even like rediscovered at all. McKay devoted a lot of his life to like writing a biography of Stirner. Mm-hmm. He spent 25 years working on this project and really wasn't able to dig up much. I mean, Stirner himself lived in complete obscurity for, you know, the last 10, 12 years of his life. And it was very difficult for him to like track down any reliable firsthand information. Even on though him. he spoke German. Even though he spoke German. Wow. Yeah. But he eventually did publish a biography of Stirner that I believe Benjamin Tucker published under his publishing imprint. And it was through Tucker's paper, Liberty, that John Henry McKay began promoting Stirner and announcing that soon there would be an English translation of the unique. Right. That it was in the works and it was going to be a long-term project, but anarchists needed to read this book. So he was he was one, you know, he was a German-Scottish anarchist, but he was one German who was definitely aware of Stirner, highly influenced by him. Both of his novels, he wrote two anarchist novels, were very influenced by Stirner. And they were an examination of the clash between a more conscious egoist anarchist perspective and social anarchism. Oh, that's interesting. Like his first book, The Anarchists, is an examination of that. Which was published by Autonomy Media today. Yeah, yeah. They they have kept it in print. And what's his second book? Uh, You know, I'm I'm going to have to pass on that question. But another German who actually was influenced by by Stirner, but didn't begin publishing until about 1915, was Adolf Brand. And he had a journal called Der Einzige. And that... In the, Germany. In Germany. Ah, okay. And that was evidently published for nine years, consistently, I think monthly. And none of that material, to my knowledge, has been translated yet oh, into wow. English. Yeah. So project. it's out there. It exists in the Labadee collection mm-hmm. on microfiche. Another German who also, in the early 1920s, embraced Stirner's ideas would be Rhett Marut, who a lot of people know sure. as B. Traven, or right. you know, B. Traven's identity has now been pretty conclusively determined. They yeah. were the same individual. And he had a, a journal called The Bricklayer, which was also published in German. All of those issues also exist in electronic form. Hmm. And actually, our good friend who recently translated The Unique is in possession of that material and is slowly chipping away at it. So hopefully some of that will appear in English soon. Well, before we dive into the period around the Bono gang, let's talk a little bit about your motivation to do enemies. Um, You know, when you originally pitched the idea, the the argument that you made that that of course appealed to me was that um, rather than sort of the friendly individualism of a lot of the American stuff, especially around liberty and especially around the people that we now refer to as sort of the, the market anarchists or the, um, you know, the, these whole traditions. <clears throat> you you were interested in, in putting together a collection of stuff that you sort of called antisocial uh, individualist perspectives. Can you talk a little bit about your motivation and, and what your what, what the line of thought was that you, that you were taking that, that led you in this direction? Well, I mean, one of the things that first 
led me in the direction of uh, even beginning this kind of research was a general frustration with the stagnation of the anarchist press and most anarchist publishing projects in the U.S., the dearth of truly inspiring, provocative material, and just the, uh, the way discussions of anarchism and anarchism as a subculture in the U.S. had kind of like solidified into a liberal social reform struggle. When you say that, what do you mean? Uh, I, I feel that like anarchists' aspirations and goals had become very limited. They were no longer expansive. It wasn't about actual transformation of the world. It was, uh, I, feel, I feel like anarchists were setting their sights way too low. And that hasn't changed. No, it hasn't changed. No. I think enemies of society was an attempt to maybe initiate such mm -hmm. a change mm -hmm. um, or to try to begin that kind of process. I feel like a lot of anarchist activity had become limited to reformist activism and people were engaging in it just to ease their own consciences and feel as though they were, they were making a difference and they were at least doing something. And the, the symbol was greater than the, than the actual impact yeah and i i feel like people were getting were taking on causes and struggles that weren't necessarily their own like there there seemed to be a disconnect between the passions and desires and true dreams of the individuals involved and what they were choosing to put their energy into so you know i wanted to i i feel like Sterner's ideas do a really good job reconciling that. Um, so I thought it was important to make self-liberation the starting point of anarchist praxis. And in fact, there was a literature of this kind of anarchist... A vast body of literature, which, you know, not many people in the English-speaking world had ever even been exposed to. For... I mean, due to the fact that a lot of it hadn't been translated yet, mm -hmm. but even the material that had been translated had been consciously, actively suppressed right. by those who write, you know, the the standard generally referred to histories of anarchism. Right. Well, I mean, that's by and large, sure, yes, on purpose, because, you know, the primary anarchist publisher prior to five years ago was AK Press. They've always been an explicitly read anarchist project. And so, at the very least, the kind of publishers that were not publishing read anarchist material you know, was pretty limited to a couple titles by Autonomy Media, a couple titles by Left Bank in the English language world, and a couple uh, titles from academic presses. But that was, that was sort of it. In other words, there weren't, there wasn't any sort of infrastructure that wasn't a red anarchist infrastructure. Yeah, uh, to, to even think about these questions. Yeah, I'd say the only uh, consistently published journal in the U.S. that was discussing these ideas and drawing attention to this forgotten history would be Anarchy: A Journal of Desire. Sure. Armed. So let's let's talk about France and and the, the second generation of illegalists. Well, you know, because the the seeds of French illegalism and anarchist criminality had already been laid in the late 1870s, mid 1880s, 
that tradi- tradition and history of French criminality, the acceptance of it, of anarchist criminality was already present. And what, is this in the sense that like when mainstream newspapers would talk about these things happening, there was basically a class of people who, who applauded it and, and saw themselves? Absolutely. Yeah. And also when it was being discussed in the anarchist press, there weren't too many detractors at that point. It was just an accepted part oh, of the French anarchist tradition. That's interesting. And did it call itself a legalism in that first generation? It did. It did. It did. Okay. Now, what shifted after the publication of Stirner and Nietzsche in France was that generation of anarchists, the ones who were actually born in the late 1880s, who were now coming of age and mm-hmm. were young adults. They'd been exposed to those ideas. They're the ideas had been out there long enough that there were several years for people to really grapple with them and for these ideas to gestate. And what they did that was different from the first generation of legalists was they jettisoned morality entirely. They didn't feel a need to justify what they were doing along political lines, along ethical and moral lines. They weren't Although they might have been doing it for the cause, their cause was their own liberation, mm-hmm. their own emancipation from economic oppression. They didn't feel a need to justify it in the anarchist press, even as mm-hmm. we were doing this for the cause. So I think it was that abandonment of morality. Well, that... just just to ask one question that's connected to that. To what extent do you think that that's connected to the Catholicism of France versus the Protestantism, not just of Germany, but of the U.S. since then. I'm not sure I, I understand the contrast between Protestantism and what that you're trying to make in Catholicism. Well, I mean, there there's a deeper conversation to have here, obviously, and, and, and you know, it, it's enough of a sidebar that I, I don't want to go too deep into it. But I, I think that there's some plausible argumentation that says that the way in which uh, exegesis happens in the Catholic imagination is really different than it is in the, in the Protestant imagination. Mm-hmm. And as a result, it leaves it leads people to a different degree or a different type of uh, self-determination when they declare autonomy for themselves. Okay, now that I, now that I follow you, I think that's a, a really interesting question. And so I'll start with Protestantism mm-hmm. first. And why there is a marked difference between the American individualists and the European individualists who are, you know, we're operating in largely Catholic dominated countries. This is really interesting. And I hadn't thought about this before, but one reason I think the American individualists place so much emphasis on discussions of economic reform, free currency, banks, um, banks, uh, yeah, anarchist credit unions. <laughs> yeah. I I think there is a connection there with Protestantism mm-hmm. and the rise of like early American capitalism, the Protestant work ethic, self determination, you know, through through hard work. Yeah. We're talking Calvinism, right? Yeah, yeah. So that that is definitely present. Mm-hmm. I mean that that was the backdrop for the development of American individualist anarchism. I think that that is reflected in their approach. And as much as I respect and admire some of the early American individualists, anarchists, and egoists like James L. Walker, mm-hmm. John Beverly Robinson, I do think they were overly preoccupied with those kind of discussions and those issues. And it has a lot to do with their cultural upbringing, social 
and religious indoctrination, which they were trying to shed, mm-hmm. but which was always there. Basically impossible to do in one generation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, now in France, yeah, I mean, with Catholicism, the stronger emphasis obviously is on sin and redemption. And I think like during the period of propaganda by deed, the period of the Attentats, that's uh, really borne out and how people like Ravishal were regarded as saints. Yeah, and, right. you know, even his teeth after his execution were passed around as like, as nice. if they had talismanic yeah. power. Uh, some of Emile Henry's clothing and articles that were discovered like in his living space after his death were passed around by anarchists and revered almost as like religious items, you know, and there were pilgrimages, weekly pilgrimages to the graves of these anarchist saints and candles being lit, you know, for years after their death. So the whole thing took on like religious overtones. And I think it, it was the milieu of Catholicism. So I think the rejection of morality that was so strongly emphasized by the anarchists who had discovered Stirner and Nietzsche was very much a reaction to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they no longer wanted to be living under the yoke of Catholic concepts of sin and moral impurity, contamination of the soul, redemption, any of that atonement. Yeah. So anyways, that was all uh, the the first comma to to the discussion about the, the origin of the second generation of French legalists. So they found themselves or found each other because of the paper, and so what were the first formations like let's talk a little bit about that that period of time how it began how it ended well like like we were discussing earlier albert libertad Mm -hmm. played a key role in bringing these people together in the first place so he was kind of the catalyst for it all and a lot of these younger anarchists like victor serge began collaborating with him on his paper even people like emile armand were involved and were Mm -hmm. In his orbit, uh, Andre Lorelut, another underappreciated early French individualist who's not too much of his work has been translated yet, but a lot of them got involved, but then Libertad was killed in what, from what I understand, was a fight between his two lovers who were sisters mm-hmm. and began to develop jealousy and rivalry for his affections. And he got caught up in the middle of it, but he, he was a cripple. And one of his crutches was grabbed and he was killed in the brawl. So at that point, his publishing project was left in the hands of his protégés, this younger generation. And uh, that's kind of where it all began. Uh, Victor Serge was, at that time, a strong proponent of illegalism, began promoting it in the paper. And he had no direct, presumably no direct knowledge that his close colleagues in the publishing world were moonlighting as bank robbers, mm-hmm. but three of them were. And while they were engaged in their activities and it was, you know, creating hysteria all over France, he was promoting and defending their activities in the pages of anarchy. So this predated the, uh, the Bonneau game. Uh, this was the rise of the Bonneau okay. game. Yeah. But, which, you know, for, the, for people which, who want all the facts on the Bonneau game, 
I can't recommend yeah. Richard Perry's book on the subject enough. I mean, it is the definitive study. Yeah. All the dates, all the names, everything's here. His and, research is well, and you have to authoritative. And, and you know, Richard Perry isn't of our generation. He's a he's an older person, uh, retired from from his profession. He is still actually very actively translating. He's doing quite a bit of material right now. What, what's he working on now? Well, sadly, he's more of a Marxist than an anarchist, and but he's one of the major figures involved in the the Marxist online library. And so I believe he just did a book. I, I know he just did a book with PM Press. Um, that and and but so I think he was involved with the Victor Serge book that just came out. Yeah, yeah. Anarchists um, never surrender. I mean, that's a worthy collection, mm-hmm. you know, despite who it was published by. It's yeah. and actually a lot of a lot of the material we're discussing right now can be found in that book. Yeah. So worthy purchase. I wouldn't say a worthy purchase. I would say steal yourself a copy. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, Richard Perry is worth mentioning because even though he sort of doesn't come from our circles, he has been one of the original translators and very engaged in this material. Obviously, yeah. the Benel game being the, be- being the best thing mm-hmm. they'll probably do. But uh, we, we have actually begun playing footsies with him about doing some future projects. That's exciting to hear. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, so yeah, so the Benel game, totally great book. It's very, very grabbable from the internet if you're so inclined um, it, it's worth mentioning just to frame the Beno gang and to start talking about them. The arc from their beginning to their end was less than a year. Yeah. They lived fast and died young for sure. Yeah. <laughs> they burned brightly for a short period of time um, in pursuit of their own emancipation. I mean, they, the problem was they were, they were identified pretty quickly. Uh, so for, you know, the last three months of their run, picture their faces were on the front page yeah the yeah i mean yeah, they were yeah. they were basically underground they they were on the run yeah. and uh once they accepted that they they knew they were going to go out in a blaze of glory mm-hmm. and uh two of them did you know bono and another member of the gang were killed in a gun gunfight but they they took some police out with them and then two other members were executed guillotined but you know they also went out with with their boots on so to speak i mean they seized that last opportunity to uh get their ideas out there so like raymond calamon's execution speech is is beautiful where is it uh located oh you you could find it in the indispensable anthology disruptive elements Mm -hmm. the extremes of french anarchism Mm -hmm. Um, that's probably the most convenient way to uh, to get yourself a copy, but you know I, w- I would recommend this this whole book. I mean, because a lot of the ideas and history and material that we're discussing right now can be found in here. Well, actually, it's worth mentioning. You know, you're one of the few people who can actually speak authoritatively to what in your head is the difference between the two collections in terms of what their what the goals were. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say with uh, enemies of society. Uh, the goal was just to draw attention to the fact that there there even was yeah. an egoist and extreme individualist tradition within anarchism. And um, I think it was unknown to a lot of people. What percentage of this was French? Uh, I'd say about a third. Um, it's just a, just a third. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh wow. I mean, this is definitely enemies of society is a more internationally oriented mm-hmm. compilation. So a lot of the material in here 
came out of came out of American soil. Some mm-hmm. of the material, sure. Britain, France, Spain, and Italy are probably the most strongly represented regions mm-hmm. in this collection. And you didn't really work with a translator for this collection. You most were were recovering texts that had otherwise been translated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that that in itself was a huge project. Just the, even finding material that had been translated into English. But in the course of that research, I realized that there was a lot more out there that hadn't been translated. Right. And some of the more interesting and tantalizing material appear seemed to me like it was coming out of France during a certain period of time. And you, I think we've talked about this before, but it is worth mentioning. I was reached out to by both Spanish speakers and Portuguese speakers who basically said this material did not exist in their language. That that enemies in particular was like new. It was totally fresh and new to them, which seems so crazy given that, you know, literally a hundred miles away from, from where these things were happening. I I know I know in Spain there there were some long running individualist papers, but they predate the Spanish Civil War, so sure. who knows how much of that survived, you know, in the first place. So, so anyway, so for the second book... So for the second book, I mean, realizing that there was a huge mountain of French individualist anarchist material out there, I began assembling it with the hope that one day I would find the right collaborator. Mm-hmm. I would join forces with a competent, skilled French translator. <laughs> And something would come of this material, which I knew had tremendous value. And while doing that, I began to realize that there were also other interesting mutant strands of French anarchism that were also unknown, that weren't exclusively egoist or individualist, but that... I felt people needed to be exposed to. So some of the, the earlier developers of French anarchists thought, like Joseph de Jacques, Ernest Corduroy, uh-huh. um, they were some of the earliest French anarchist thinkers, some of the most, I mean, to date, to date still some of the most original, idiosyncratic, and eccentric. Well, let's, let's talk about that time period a little bit. This is us going back... 80 years basically in time but really we're talking about a period that you know we sort of identify as being uh the 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 period that sean wilbur has really dominated in yeah, terms yeah. of translation and in terms of just giving a fuck about french material from that era but clearly he's a prudonist it might be a very strange prudonist it's it's hard to to totally wrap your head around what his perspective is but let's talk about how these thinkers are distinct from Proudhon. Ernest Corduroy and Joseph de Jacques were definitely contemporaries of Proudhon. They had some interaction with him even. But during that period of time, anarchism was still a free-for-all. I mean, the the ideas were new and fresh. Nothing had been codified yet. Mm -hmm. It hadn't been reined in. Proudhon was trying his best to do just that and to make it more systematic. Mm -hmm. And in his image, of course. In, in in his own image, but other anarchists didn't feel that there needed to be any restrictions on the development of anarchist thought, and they just let their utopian imaginations run wild. So both Corduroy and de Jacques were highly influenced by Charles Fourier, and that, that comes out in their writings. That's very clear. For those who, who don't know much about Fourier, what... 
what uh, aligns him with anarchist thought what what was he about well i think fourier was almost like the utopian socialist equivalent of some of these early, highly imaginative anarchists like Corderoy and Dijac in the sense that he didn't place any restrictions on his imagination. He let it, he let it run wild. And I think his ideas, the ideas he developed, he came up with a very unique critique of civilization that could almost be described as fantastical. There is a, an element of speculative fantasy and daydreaming to you know what what he was doing um but he had a huge influence i mean at that point he he actually was taken seriously like 20 30 years later he was regarded as a crackpot you know by people like marx and Engels who read him thought there might have been some value in his ideas but he he was dismissed as a wingnut and a crackpot Mm -hmm. and his ideas were dismissed as impractical, which they largely are, but that's not where the value of Fourier lies anyway. Fourier, I think, was approached by some of these early anarchists as a stimulant to the imagination. Mm-hmm. What were three of his propositions that were insane or, or seem insane in hindsight? He wanted to form communities he called phalanxes, and it involved, it, it was based around uh, the concept of passionate labor. And how nobody should ever be doing the same task right. repetitively for more than like a day in the ro- in a row or even for like several hours in a row. So within these communities, people would be constantly rotating tasks and they would go from cooking pastries for two hours to dance classes. And then they'd go, go out and work the pear orchard and then... They would have their mandatory group sex sessions. Mm-hmm. So the uh, the erotic minimum, as he referred to it, would, would be met by everybody. Um, there's a lot of crazy ideas in there. And Fourier also believed that, you know, we were in a, a phase, a planetary phase that he referred to as civilization. It was a phase we were passing through, but it was an oppressive, repressive stage oh, that was great. based on the repression of the passions and he felt that we would soon be exiting this phase of civilization entering the phase of harmony and when that occurred and this is where it gets a little fantastical the polar caps would shift all uh annoying noxious life forms like poisonous snakes and spiders would disappear (laughs) when harmony was reestablished (laughs) The oceans would turn into drinkable lemonade. Humans would grow tails that would have uh, another hand and an eyeball within the palm of that hand. Of course, this would take a while. (laughs) Yeah. but Not um, not weeks. (laughs) No, no. It it would be a centuries-long process. But he was predicting, like, a mutation once the conditions of harmony were reestablished. I mean, you you could almost say Fourier was, like, a combination of, like, wingnut prophet, visionary poet and early science fiction writer yeah right so because a lot of it does come across as science fiction but these early anarchists were exposed to Fourier Mm -hmm. he was taken seriously at the time this is like Um, 1840s really. yeah yeah 1840s so uh they they embraced his critique of civilization and so that 
His influence is strongly reflected in the writings of Corduroy and de Jacques. Um, de Jacques wound up spending a lot of his life in the U.S., though. He came over here and tried to establish himself as a printer in New York City, wound up moving to New Orleans and supported himself as a house painter down there. And that's where he got exposed to the American slave system. And so his writings are, are really influenced by that, like his observations of the institution of slavery in oh, the U.S. Wow. So one very interesting piece uh, that is reprinted in Disruptive Elements that actually Sean, Sean Wilbur translated mm-hmm. was his reaction to Harper's Ferry and to the John oh, Brown wow. uprising. Yeah, right. And that, place is called, that piece is called Vendetta, and that can be found in Disruptive Elements. Mm-hmm. So he he was inspired by John Brown's uprising and saw the revolt against slavery as a revolt against civilization. And that's how he was framing it and discussing it. And his his hope was that there was going to be a large scale class based multiracial uprising Mm -hmm. against slavery. Interesting. You know, the other Frenchman who, who had actually connected with New Orleans around that time period was... Um, Reclus. Yeah, Reclus. And, um, uh, you know, John Clark, who is an uh, anarchist professor based out of the New Orleans area, uh, really has tried to redeem uh, New Orleans as sort of like this uh, internationalist location during that time period. But, of course, uh, Reclus was an anarcho-communist. And so I, do you know if, if there was any intersection between these? I don't think so, because, you know, de Jacques, although he spent the last six years of his life in the yeah. U.S., he, he died kind of young. Okay. So the best of my knowledge, they had no contact mm-hmm. with, with one another. Corduroy? But Corduroy, um, he was caught up in, like, he got involved in the 1848 revolution in France. Mm-hmm. And after that became a wanted man. He wound up doing three years of jail time and they let him out. And then he published a small anthology of anarchist poetry that the French state found so threatening that they put another warrant out for his arrest. And that's when he decided to go on the lam. And he spent the remaining 15 years of his life traveling around Europe on foot. Um, Pretty much an intellectual vagabond. moving from country to country, spent a lot of time in Germany, spent a lot of time in the Mediterranean, some time in the UK. And it was during his travels that he did most of his writing. So his first book was called Hurrah, the Revolution is Coming from the East. And he had developed a theory that the European working class had been beaten down for so long and were so slavish and obedient in their mentality that there was no hope of expecting that they were going to be the spearhead of the revolution, that they were going to be the ones to initiate things. He felt it was going to come from the Russians. It was going to be the Russian peasantry who were less less domesticated, um, less tamed and who still possessed this like primitive barbaric fury <laughs> and that it was going to start there and spread into Europe and yeah. they, they were going to be the emancipators and the vanguard of sure. this 
revolt against civilization. Again, you know, a lot of that book exhibits the influence of Fourier, although mm. Fourier promoted more like a gradual, peaceful transformation through the adoption of his harmonic principles. I mean, Corduroy wanted to see civilization ransacked in in a really apocalyptic fashion. I mean, his writing style in, in some ways, uh, it bears comparisons to, to the book of revelations. Oh, I mean, wow. it's, it's that kind of like, you know, fire and brimstone yeah. imagery. He's a really beautiful writer. And what's the best thing he's done that's been translated? Well, nothing, nothing's been fully translated yet. So he was another anarchist who was completely forgotten about after his death. His, Mother burned most of his writings after his death, like stuff that hadn't been published. But the the two things he's most known for that were published in his lifetime were the book I just mentioned and then his three-volume Days of Exile. About his life. About his life, but also, you know, his anarchist musings, his, uh, you know, through his travels, like reflections on anarchism and what he would like to see in the world, what he was encountering and how it could be different. So after his death, a lot of his writings got burned and the few books that had been published just began to be swallowed by the void until Max Netlaw began researching, you know, what's like his 10 volume history of anarchism. He rediscovered Corduroy and we have him to thank for like the fact that we have any knowledge of him at all at this point. Mm Mm-hmm. And he was so impressed by his writing style and his literary genius. You know, Netlau himself compared Corduroy as a writer to Nietzsche. He was like, as a literary stylist, he is every bit as good as Nietzsche. So he devoted many years of his life to tracking down the few works of Corduroy that actually were published. And now they're out there. They're not available in English. Only snippets have been translated. Um, my close friend and collaborator on Disruptive Elements, the main translator for that project, Vincent Stone, is working on translating oh, some wow. of this material. So, Big project. Big project. So, you know, getting exposed to like those two figures, mm-hmm. for example. And then other figures like, say, Emile Puget, who was a class war anarchist uh, of the same generation as Zodiaxa, Ravishal. Like he was, he was around during that time period, the propaganda by deed time period. But he published a daily in Paris that could, daily. it could be viewed as a early version of the British paper class war. Very similar approach. It was written in work entirely in working class vernacular what was it called uh pierre parnard and which translates as the cobbler okay and so their their image on their masthead was was a cobbler throwing a brick at a cop and you know it was full of vulgar irreverent working class humor this was the approach he consciously took he was actually well educated he was working class but he chose to write in that writing style because he felt he would reach a wider readership and he did and you know this is something i would have to look up to get exact figures but the circulation of that paper was was astounding even by today's standards i mean i can't think of an anarchist project or journal in the u.s that 
has even come close oh, to wow. achieving this kind of circulation. Can't find it now. But uh, so you know, discovering him, it's like okay, here here's an individual. He's more class war oriented, more of a social anarchist, but he's taken such a humorous mm-hmm. and highly creative, like from a street strategic perspective, yeah, yeah. approach to it all that. People deserve to know about this guy and what he was doing. His writings are hilarious. He, you know, wields black humor as as a weapon, which a lot of anarchists have forgotten how to do. So once Vincent and I realized what we were sitting on, we realized that the scale of what we were assembling, like, transcended just individualist anarchism. Like, this project wasn't going to be limited to just that, that there was a lot going on. So we wanted to cover the entire spectrum of like what we would see as extreme anarchism in France, not, not the tepid slow reformist anarchism of Proudhon. Well, well, and maybe perhaps more pointedly to the, to the extent to which anarchists have had traditional categories. A lot of this book is about the not traditional categories. Absolutely. Absolutely. So even though some anarcho communists are represented, they fall outside the the measure of anarcho-communism for other reasons. Yeah, and we felt we felt it was important. Like we almost felt as though we had we had stumbled upon like the hidden history of at least French anarchism. Sure. And we know we we realized even when this project was completed that we had barely scratched the surface that there was so much more out there. So we were just seeing it as you know the beginning of a much more long-term project of like excavating this kind of history. I just want to talk about to the extent to which there was a different time period that we would refer to as the illegalist period. Um, and then perhaps a different time period or a different set of thoughts that went into the Ottentop period. You know, obviously there was some overlap between both of these sort of ways to practice anarchist principles. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't talked much about the Ottentats which obviously Ravachal sort of rec- uh, represents the, if, mm-hmm. not, if not the beginning, like like the introduction to the world of this approach. You know, I, I feel that like the period of the, the Attentats and a, a lot of what was motivating the people who participated in them. Um, Actually, I think... uh, just for those who have not heard this word before or used in this context, Attentat refers to... Uh, essentially violence against class oppressors uh, um, by and large attentats the the bigger the target the better so the assassination of McKinley is considered an attentat but also and this is in the case of Robert Shell, uh, you know he primarily attacked cafes that were considered like bourgeois or upper class and so um, uh, so I would well, I, I think, again, we see the influence of Catholicism culturally, because I think while all of these anarchists who took part in attentats rejected religion, they hadn't fully deconstructed religious thinking. Yeah. And so there, there is like a religious missionary zeal that seems to have been motivating many of them. Um, I, I think that's that's pretty clear, like when you read their... Their manifestos, you know, their uh, execution statements mm-hmm. that there was a sense of Catholic martyrdom to what they were doing. Like they were willing to die on the cross, so to speak, 
for for the cause of anarchism. And it was anarchism approached almost as like uh, a religious ideal. I mean, it was the the paradise or the second coming that Christians are waiting for, but they were going to make it happen now. They were going to play their part. And so there's a lot of religious underpinnings to um, that period of time. Okay. So that being said, these also were some of the clearest expressions of anarchist thinking in general. In other words, how different uh, an anarchist approach to living in the world were because these people did uh, commit to the act of taking out people, which of oh, yeah, yeah. Is, is not necessarily normal behavior, is a, you know assassinating cops and judges and and making attempts on heads of state. Yeah, and you know that became very popular throughout Europe during this this wave, the period we would call the period of propaganda by deed, like. Well, in France, you had August Valiant try to take out basically the entire French parliament. They were called the Chamber of Deputies at the time. And he went in there with bombs that um, contained nails. I mean, so his idea was just to hurl a few of those and everybody would at least be injured or killed. And he failed. He did throw a few and he injured quite a few. But, uh, you know, he was immediately apprehended. Emile Henry is probably the most infamous French uh, participant in propaganda by deed. But when he got involved with it, by that point, he considered anybody who was a member of the bourgeoisie to be part of the problem and to be the enemy. So he was a little less uh, discriminating in his attacks. And Well, Robert Shell is the same way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he lobbed grenades essentially into cafes. Yeah, yeah. With little care as to... As to who was head or yeah, so yeah, there there was an attitude amongst uh, many people participating in that at the time that there there were no innocents, which which you know we, has a modern resonance. It does. So clearly, for a lot of anarchists, this period of propaganda by the deed or or attentat uh, represents sort of like a shameful part of our history and like like perhaps an end to. The, um, the the capacity of an anarchist vision for a revolutionary social change. Because obviously a lot of the on-top people did make an argument that they were hoping that this would remind the people, the masses, that our leaders are fallible and... And, and vulnerable. And vulnerable. And that, and that basically we could seize our life back. We had the power to seize our life back as demonstrated by these attentats. Yeah, and unfortunately, it didn't have the galvanizing effect I think they were they were hoping for. And I think for people who were attempting to develop anarchism as a mass movement, they felt that that it was making their job more difficult. So there were a lot of a lot of anarchists attempted to distance themselves from it. But the period of propaganda by deed, the practitioners of propaganda by deed, definitely had support as well. Though they weren't completely marginalized and isolated mm-hmm. from the anarchist milieu. I mean, the support was there in greater numbers than we would probably see now in America in the 21st century for similar acts were yeah. they to occur. I mean, this is this is the thing that, that I do feel is different between that period and this period. I actually think that there is as much support today as there would be then, but I believe that the media is more slavishly adhering to a particular type of political line today that they weren't then. In yeah. other words, I believe today people who actually were in support of some, you know, horrific act 
would in fact not be reported on. Mm-hmm. That, that that would basically be ignored. But instead, the the people who you know essentially want to destroy all in, uh, opposition, they're ab- absolutely covered. Well, in a way, you could look at groups like ITS and Wild Reaction sure. as the modern equivalents of you know the French anarchist assassins. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I mean, there are differences there, mm-hmm. ideologically, philosophically, but. Um, how much support are they really getting? They're not seeking support either. They right. clearly clearly don't care whether it, it, it exists or not. Yeah. But look at some of the hysterical reactions they're yes. evoking among anarchists. See, I think that was that's a big difference too between what was going on uh, in France right. in eighteen between eighteen eighty and say eighteen eighty five. I did write something a few years ago. Uh, it's a pamphlet that. My friend Vincent Stone and I published recently. It's called The Paradox of Redemptive Dynamite. It's a study of propaganda by Deed in France. And there's a small section I want to read right now that I think says a lot about the cultural context and why it arose and why it arose specifically in France. The French attentats didn't arise without warning or seemingly out of nowhere. One of the factors clearly nourishing the whole phenomenon of propaganda by deed, was the culturally rooted strand of millenarian thought which runs through European and American history as a consistent theme. Millenarianism is a quest for an otherworldly collective salvation, where the entire world is harmoniously united under a single law or kingdom of God that emerged within the sphere of various religious sects. To the millenarian, history has its own predetermined course, which is being carried to its completion, and the millenarian hopes and terminology of these fringe Christian sects were later secularized in anarchist and socialist ideology. The same hopes remained, only now they were to be realized on earth through non-religious means, i.e. without the institutionalized church and clergy. In other words, the religious vision persevered while the expression of it changed with the times. Millenarian movements always seem to appear in periods of social tension or disintegration. These are the seasons when the millennial promises blaze and social messianic rhetoric flares. So it comes as no great surprise that anarchists, many of whom had deconstructed religion but not religious idealism, would transform this intense expectation for a purification that would sweep away the old world and usher in the society of natural harmony into a revolutionary program. When anarchism became a social gospel, it had something of the advent about it, turning out sweet salvationary phrases and fire and brimstone battle cries by the bushels for the consumption of candy-minded revolutionaries. But this is merely the sad resurrection of religion in a new form, where the ideal stands over each individual and exerts, like God, a psychological influence that fo- fosters willing martyrdom. This form of anarchism as a quasi-religion naturally developed its own eschatology, stressing an impending catastrophe of an extraordinary nature lying at the end of a long line of uniform history and the breaking off of a drab continuum. So I I feel like this is why figures like 
Ravishal took on an almost saintly status. And even in the the woodcuts of Ravishal from that period of time, you know, they're consciously modeled on Christian and Catholic iconography. Yeah. So one of the more interesting aspects of this, though, um, I'd like to keep reading here, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. In borrowing the grand and alluring symbols of the Savior from Christian iconography, manipulatively attempting to stir the deepest emotions and noblest feelings of their own flock, anarchist artists like Charles Maureen only helped expose how deeply Christianity has sunk its poisonous shaft even into the rebel imagination. In addition to the pictures of Ravishal that many anarchists carried in their pockets, police also reported an underground trade in Emil Henry's artifacts, as if the objects contained talismanic power. The veneration of anarchist martyrs as saints led to some decidedly bizarre and esoteric spiritualist offshoots, such as the cult of universalism, which arose on the fringes of popular anarchism in the coastal city of Toulon. Founded by Marie St. Remy, universalism was obsessed with reincarnation and with astral communication with deceased anarchist figures like Ravishal and August mm. Valiant. This is obviously an extreme example that, of the tendency to transfer reli- religious devotion to the political sphere, but it highlights the religious impulse running through so many movements focused on sweeping so- social transformation. So I, I think that is something that was very much fueling the period of the Yatentats. Yeah. And it'd be good for anarchists to be honest about that. 